Welcome back to the Constitutionals Podcast, uh, episode 272.5. I do do points. If you did not know that I did that, uh, we have a very, very special uh, guest episode for you. This is uh, uh, an interview that I set up out of the blue. It was fun. It was fantastic. Uh, this guy is great. Eric Deggins will be talking to uh, Eric Deggins. He is a TV and media critic. Uh, he's uh, he's done a lot of work with NPR. He's appeared on CNN. He uh, if you follow him on LinkedIn or uh, Twitter, formerly known as X or Instagram, you might see this guy posting about how he sometimes. Uh, uh, steps in to host the uh, Florida this week again, and uh, he's just a smart guy, and he, and he writes. He writes about uh, TV. He writes about culture. Uh, yeah, he's he's a fantastic person, um, uh, and uh, I, I've always wanted to to talk to uh, Eric, and I'm so glad I got a chance to sit down. I'm so glad he answered my email. He didn't have to. So many people don't answer my emails, <laughs> but this guy did. Uh, you can see him, uh, his journalism and his writings, uh, more recently, or, you know, he's written, uh, a lot of things, uh, including race baiter, how the media wields dangerous words to divide a nation. He did not come here to promote anything. He just came here to chat about, uh, uh media, the, the world, and uh, and how it affects everything in our uh, culture and how we take it in and stuff. Uh, he's a, again, I'm telling you, he's one of the smartest people I've ever spoken to on this uh, platform. And I talk to a lot of smart people. I can't name a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. Everybody's a genius uh, in their own way. Uh, again, he's done TV criticism. He, <laughs> Eric, goes off on this. <laughs> On this uh, very well-deserved uh, discussion about the um, the spinoff, the uh, uh, to Squid Game, the the not, I mean, I guess this is technically a spinoff. Um, it's a competition. There's a competition spinoff to to Squid Game, and uh, it stinks. It's not good. Uh, I I watched a couple of minutes of it. I'm not a huge fan, and neither is Eric. So it's 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 fun to see him just kind of, uh, as the kids say, go off. I'm scrolling through his NPR page. God, I just whistled there, and he's uh, and there and there are a lot of things that uh, that I read on my own uh, prior to setting this up. Like he did a uh, a Roy Wood Jr. piece. Um, he's talked about uh, the new Frasier, uh, a lot of Daily Show things, including the um, uh, the Hasan Minaj. New Yorker uh, thing that's been going on as well as like some SAG stuff. And it's just been, uh, it was a fantastic discussion to have with Eric. Uh, if you want to follow him and all the social medias and things, uh, he is on NPR. Check out his stuff on NPR. Truly like everything, like a lot of his written uh, things are right there. Uh, follow him on uh, Instagram at E Deggins. Follow him on Twitter at uh, Deggins. Uh, that's D-E-G-G-A-N-S. And uh, Facebook, Eric Deggins. You can find him all over the gaff. Uh, he is a, uh, uh, again, wonderful person and uh, uh, very smart. Um, and uh, if you want to see the video version of this conversation, head to YouTube.com slash C Comedy. It's under the interviews. I'll come up with some type of fun title <laughs> at some point. Uh, between now and when I post it, the title will be there. And if you want to see, if you want to listen to the other podcasts we have, we have uh, the Constitutional, which is the mainline version of uh, wherever this is posted, which is the Entertainment Business News Podcast. I tried to do my best to talk about things in the entertainment business news world. You can follow us. Uh, you can see, uh, listen to LinkedIn Logs, which is the, the the job podcast where I try to get a job and talk about jobs um, in the industry and everything and how uh, hard that crap is and uh Baby, we were restarting that that debate, that that discussion, and because uh, my contract's over. And uh, then there's uh, what? What's the last one? LinkedIn logs, the constitutionals. Oh, and late night lately, <laughs> Jesus, the late late night show show, which is the uh, late night show podcast where not a recap. I just talk about 
all of uh, the things in late night for the week and, and things that uh, stood out for me. And, and I try to choose a story and, and, and talk long-windedly about that as well. You can watch video versions for all of those podcasts and more on youtube.com slash people's comedy news time is coming back i can finally talk about that because i was post i was taking a long time off and now we're, we're going to come back uh and do a couple of stories for the year here and uh and you can follow us on social medias tiktok instagram facebook twitter at c plus comedy me at chad black white thank you for listening and now tune in for this interview with eric deggins <laughs> What are you watching uh, right now that that sticks out to you? Uh, right now, well, um, it's an interesting time for critics because at the end of the year is when you generally look back. Mm -hmm. So I'm spending a lot of time um, voting on uh, different um, critics lists and things like that about what the best shows of 2023 were. So I'm spending a lot of time actually looking back on reviews that I wrote in the past and, um, you know, things that other people have said that uh, are great. And, and um, if enough people said they were great, I might try to check out a little bit of them just to see if I agree. Um, so there's, so there's been a, a lot of that actually uh, right now I'm voting on the critics choice awards. Um, I'm on committees that come up with nominations and then the whole membership votes on who wins and then, um, you know, I just helped judge something for the Independent Spirit Awards and uh, um, NPR is trying to figure out, you know, we have five, we have about five or six people who write about film and television and we're trying to figure out who's going to write what in, our, in this big piece that we do that's kind of the best of 2023. So I'm spending a lot of time actually uh, looking back. But um, the stuff that I've seen that's that's coming that I think is really interesting, um, you know, uh, Fargo's back yeah. and for its um, fifth season. And, you know, it's it's previous season um, was disappointing. Um, it was almost it was two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, people may not remember it. Uh, Chris Rock was in it. Glenn Turman was in it. And it was set, I think, in the 40s or 50s. And we saw. Um, we saw Chris Rock as like a, a, a gangland un underworld leader. He was the leader of um, sort of the black mafia in Kansas City. And he was running up against, you know, another organization. And there were other people involved. And so it was the first time Fargo had that many people of color, characters of color in it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I always feel like there are times when I can tell that a show um, features a lot of black characters but doesn't necessarily have a lot of black writers or doesn't have a lot of black writers who have agency and power and can affect how the storytelling is uh, because it feels because it always feels like a little too careful like like what the characters do feel feels a little too careful and a little too mannered and a little too predictable and and so I don't know if that was the case with the last season of Fargo but I really felt like um they never really let Chris Rock's character like fully do what he might be capable of doing or fully fully be what he might be capable of being and I, it always felt like those characters were were held back a little bit were restrained uh and and I think that sometimes happens when uh white showrunners are writing black characters and they're trying to be careful um so so uh so that was kind of a disappointing season this season is much better. Um, it's, you know, Fargo's an anthology, so it's going to be a completely different story. And uh, John Hamm plays this uh, sheriff um, in North Dakota who is almost like a cult leader, kind of a MAGA style, uh, you know, authoritarian who, who, who runs his jurisdiction as if he is, uh, you know, the supreme leader. And um, you know, it's very um strict and 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 brutal when people transgress his rules. And Juno Temple, who people will know from Ted Lasso, um, plays a woman who was once his wife and ran away from him and assumed a new identity. And she gets arrested when she's living her new identity, which is as a Midwestern housewife. And uh, and and suddenly she pops up on his radar again and he goes after her. 
And um, there's a lot of really interesting characters in there. Jeff- Jennifer Jason Leigh plays um, this this woman who runs a, a family-run corporation, and she's ruthless, and she comes up against John Hamm's character in a really interesting way. And um, uh, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall plays her right-hand man. He's also really interesting. You know, this these characters are really vivid. They're not holding back. <laughs> they 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 are they are really um, you know going for it. And Lamore Morris pl- plays a, a sheriff who kind of or um, a, uh, an officer who kind of gets caught up in, in what's going on when he tries to save Juno Temple uh, when these these thugs uh, who work for the sheriff for uh, John Hamm's character come after her. So it's a, it's a really interesting tapestry of characters. And it may sound like I gave away a lot, but I really basically just said what happened in the first episode, which I already aired. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot going on with this, with this show. And I really like it. Um, there's a show on Apple TV plus called uh, Monarch legacy of monsters. Yeah which I also think is really interesting. A lot of people may not realize that Legendary Pictures, which is this production house, uh, created a shared monster verse. They got the rights to make movies about Godzilla and about King Kong and about Mothra, a few other of these classic, you know, huge, um, you know, monster characters. And they created a, a through three films, they created this sort of shared monster verse where they're all supposedly in the same cinematic universe. And uh, Monarch Legacy of Monsters is a, a, a series for Apple TV Plus that also takes place in that world. And Monarch is this sort of semi-secret government organization that is supposed to be keeping track of these monsters, but it seems to have lost its way in the modern age. And, and Kurt Russell and his son, Wyatt Russell, play the same character, which is a guy who co-founded the agency way back um, around the time of the invention of the atomic bomb. And, um, you know, now you know, we see, we go back and forth between seeing him as a young man setting uh, up this agency played by Wyatt to him as an older man played by Kurt Russell, trying to get this agency back on track. Um, he feels it's lost its way. And there's a bunch of other human characters that are kind of caught up in the action. And what I like about it is that it's much more about the characters and the people who are caught up in this situation rather than focusing so much on these giant monsters. And they are very judicious and very kind of uh, creative in how the monsters appear. They're, they're, you know, we don't go, we never go too long without seeing them, but they're very careful about how they roll them out because it's really about understanding these characters and these humans who are trying to cope with the fact that these giant, you know, people are realizing these giant monsters exist and humans have to figure out how to coexist with them on earth. Um, it's a really interesting show, much better than I thought it would be, and um, and really worth uh, really worth people checking out. So that's that's some stuff that I've watched that's actually happening now, or rolling out now. But like I said, a lot of what I've been doing is is catching up on old stuff. Yeah, and, and that's completely fair because you know, as as a, as critic and, and media analyst, you guys, you all have to really dive in and kind of be renaissance people of everything you have to at least know that something exists you can't just pretend that oh because i didn't like uh uh uh, uh, for all mankind on apple tv plus doesn't mean that i don't that 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 doesn't exist to the 20 or so million people that actually watched it uh, over the course of the five seasons or however long it lasts um it's it's it is I, I will say it is a little easier to sort of refine your focus as a critic because there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started covering television a long time ago in 1997. And back then, you know, when it when a hit was as big as Friends or as big as Seinfeld, you had you had to write about it, even if you didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they were it, it just took up so much of the pop culture landscape. But now, you know, even the most popular show, um, you know, doesn't have nearly the amount of viewers that those shows did. Right. And so, you know, you there's always, you know, you can always focus on the shows that you find compelling, even when there are other really popular shows out there that people are talking about. If, if you don't have something compelling to say about them, or if you don't particularly like, like if you don't like something, you can say something compelling about it. I, I don't like squid game, the challenge, this 
reality TV show that was built uh, to um, sort of replicate um, in a reality TV show format these the fictional show Squid Game. I, I hate that show, uh, but I can say a lot of compelling things about it because I have strong feelings about it. It's, it's much harder to say something compelling about something that you 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 feel kind of middle of the road about and right. it's easier to ignore those those kinds of shows even if they're popular because there's so much else out there that you can talk about when whenever you bouncing off that whenever you have such vitriol for something and i'm not saying you have that for the challenge uh, so i do i do you know you're right yeah. <laughs> okay. all right well we have such vitriol for something <laughs> and let's say you are assigned that by the assignment editor and they're going or the by the editor and they're going hey uh, can you please write about this uh, how, 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 how do you approach that to be measured and not come off of as somebody who just has, uh, a, a bunch of points to make against something just for the heck of it? Well, I mean, again, the point is you, you, sh you should have something compelling to say, and you should have something substantive to say. And so if you have compelling and substantive things to say about a show that you hate, the, the, the piece will be compelling and substantive. Uh, I think sometimes um, the the interesting moments occur when they come to me like like, um, you know, I got a request to talk about the Golden Bachelor. Now, I, I, I sort of told them, you know, I only watched one episode of it. I'm planning to catch up uh, so that I can do something about the finale, which is uh, on, uh, you know, this week. I don't know when when this podcast is going to hit, but uh, but it's it's at the the end of uh, November. Mm -hmm. Um uh, beginning of December. And so, um, you know, I'm going to catch up so that I can say something about the finale. But um, at the, when they asked me about it, um, I'd only watch one episode. And and again, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's a pretty uh, staunch critic of most reality TV shows. So I, I didn't like it. And they wanted to do kind of a friendly, hey, you know, here's a new reality TV show that everybody loves. And I was like, you know, people like it. Um, but it's still the same underneath. It's still the same sort of insidious um, kind of manipulative yeah. um, uh, undertaking that a great many reality TV shows are, especially in the Bachelor franchise. Mm -hmm. So if I were to talk about it, I'm not going to say it's a great show. I'm going to talk about how much uh, I don't I dislike it and how dishonest it is with viewers. And and so, you know, uh, even especially when it comes to talking about reality TV, I think sometimes the producers at NPR are like, uh, you know, it, they, they can't come to me with those. Hey, let's let's have a fun talk about, you know, a reality TV show, because um, I think so many of those shows are are um, really destructive. And, and, and so, um, and, 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 and what, um, what, what always sort of amuses me a little bit, or, and in some ways, you know, is, is kind of a bummer is that I will say, you know, I don't want to do a fun talk about Vanderpump rules, or I don't want to do a fun talk about the real housewives and people go, Oh, everybody's watching. it. Oh, it's so, so fun. And then two or three years later, People who are on the show come out and they talk about how they were abused when they were making it. And they talk about how manipulative the production is. And there's these scandals because people connected to it have committed crimes. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody wants to talk about how, how you know, trouble in paradise. And I'm like, if you'd have listened to me <laughs> two or three years ago, you know, um, we we have come to accept some things in our entertainment because it entertains us that we should not accept. And the way most reality TV shows construct their um, their, their programs is is one of them. And we should really be you know more critical of these shows and not you know because because when they start they feel like a breath of fresh air. They feel very entertaining. But there's always manipulation and misdirection and exploitation beneath the surface because that's how most of these shows work. Yeah. And 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 so, you know, I, I just um and so, you know, if there's any tension, uh, and it's and it's minor, you know, what they want me to say what's on my mind. They want me, they know that the piece is only gonna be good if I'm uh, talking about what I genuinely think and they value my point of view. 
So if they want a feel-good story about a reality TV show, they'll just find somebody else who who has a different view of the genre than I do. Um, but but ultimately, if there's any tension or any sort of you know back and forth, I think it's stuff like that. Sometimes they have a take on something, and I have to say no because I know a lot about this. You know, I you know I, I've been I, I covered. The woman I, I interviewed the woman who came in second in the very first season of The Bachelor because oh, wow. I was writing for a newspaper in Florida and she was from uh, the area that I cut that the newspaper was based in. And so she gave me an interview and all the things that she said about what she experienced in doing that very first season of The Bachelor, like, you know, 22 seasons ago or 25 seasons ago. Um, is is what people complain about now when they're on these shows. It's what the people who are, were on Real Housewives and Vanderpump Rules, what they complained about in stories for Vanity Fair and other places. It, you know, it's it's an exploitative medium much of the time. And we can't let the fact that, you know, the end product is entertaining distract us from the fact that how it's made can be brutal on the people who uh, who participate in it. And And you can say, well, they chose to do it. But the fact of the matter is, it is hard to know what you're agreeing to do when you agree to do these shows mm -hmm. because you're told it's one kind of experience. And then when you get into it, you find out it's a very different kind of experience. And, right. and so, um, you know, anyway, it's a long winded answer, but that's sort of uh, the deal. You know, um, they know uh, in general where my tastes are mm -hmm. and they're happy to have me just come on and give my point of view. And they know I'm always going to try and make it compelling. So when I was talking about Squid Game, the challenge, for example, um, you know, a lot of people criticize the fact that the original show, the scripted show is um, this Th not so thinly veiled treatise on how abusive capitalism is. And you have all these people who are either crushingly poor or they're saddled with crushing debt or, or both. And they wind up kind of compelled to compete in this game where they will likely die. And the only person who survives will receive enough money to lift themselves out of poverty and out of debt. And, um, you know, creating a reality TV show where people are fake killed in the same kinds of comp competitions seems like kind of a gross um, caricature of the themes of the original. Yeah. And, uh, and it seems like you would only create it if you were sort of tone deaf about what the original was trying to say. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, so a lot of people pointed that out, but beyond that, you know, um, and, and spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen Squid, Squid Game, but, you know, um, you eventually find out that this Squid Game and the scripted show it is created to be amusement for super wealthy people yeah. that they um, um, that they are sort of kicking back and, and you know, eating, drinking fine wine and eating fine foods and 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 um, and enjoying the spectacle of seeing these poor people tortured and killed for their amusement. And so when you create a reality TV competition show based on all of that you're forcing the audience to be the wealthy people. <laughs> like the audience is coming to this show and watching these people go through all this stuff and be fake killed for their amusement. And, you know, um, I haven't, you know, I, I have access to a lot of episodes of it. I've only been able to force myself to watch three or four of them, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but to, to, to set up a situation where you're sort of putting the, making the audience be the bad guy in a weird way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe they're doing it on purpose. Maybe in the end, there'll be some twists that'll show why it was worth sitting through all this. But for the most part, it just sort of feels like they're uh, asking the audience to disregard all of the themes of the original and just enjoy this reality TV spectacle that was built around all the games and the visual look of Squid Game. And instead, what's happening is that the themes keep smacking me in the face every time I watch it. And I think, you know... I, this is terrible. They're 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 recreating, they're they're re-exploiting people in a way that the original show criticizes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so anyway, I mean, I think that's pretty compelling. And to you know say that in a piece or say that in a discussion or you know I wrote about it online and it got a lot of um, discussion on Threads and 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 X slash Twitter. You know, I, I think that can be compelling. Yeah.
that that uh i mean i just saw an article today in the trades that was talking about how one of the contestants uh got sick from the 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 cookie challenge the the licking the cookie and all that stuff and and that show itself has been plagued since it began production what early last year and and we just never heard a good thing coming out of it so i think it's very important to continue talking about how that show does treat people and how how you know netflix just kind of let this slide even from the beginning i mean it, it's just it's just bad it kind of feels like we're treating people like caged animals like chickens and and <laughs> and, and we're just and we're just like like go do this and and then maybe maybe you'll live at the end of it it, it, it just it yeah just, it and just, and you know one of the things that sort of came out you know because several people who've competed on the show have complained about the production process and one of the things that came out is that like one of the early competitions is this game of red light green light mm-hmm. um similar to the one that was in the original where this this statue the head turns around and when the statue's looking at you you have to stop and if you move at all then you are shot you know this die pack kind of erupts on the player and they're they're they fall down like they've been shot and they're ejected from the game and then the head turns around and you run towards this finish line and you have to stop when the head turns around again so um on in the show they make it look like it took five minutes because that's the way the original um, game was set up in the scripted show, mm-hmm. uh, but it actually took five hours to film. It. And and so one reason why, um, you know, some people were having such a hard time staying still is because they had to stay still for like 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> they, were, they didn't have to stay still for like a few seconds or 15 seconds, the way they made it look yeah. on the TV show. And so, you know, the thing to me is sort of like if you're if you're. Um, if you're watching a quote unquote reality show that lies to you about something as basic as how long it took to do a competition, what are you watching? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, what is, why not just watch the scripted thing? <laughs> why, why, why watch something that's sort of pretending to be one reality when it's actually another reality? And then when you tell people that they lied, people are like, oh, well, it's reality TV. Everybody lies. I, what? And, and 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 so not to not to draw you know not to be too heavy-handed about this but you know is it any wonder that we're in a reality where you know politicians and media people who are are supposed to be dealing in facts mm-hmm. um you know feel free to bend and twist and 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 uh, and 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 eliminate inconvenient facts mm-hmm. and tell whatever story they want and expect people to believe it you know, it's it's an ethic that can sort of seep into all kinds of corners of media if you're not careful. So, um, you know, anyway, I don't I didn't mean to get on my soapbox quite so much about reality TV, but but it is an attitude that I think kind of really bugs me because it, it really can seep into other how you regard other kinds of media. And people have this cynicism where they assume that they know how they're being lied to, but they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's and that's the thing. You know, you know, don't 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 um, don't tolerate the lie because you assume, you know, how you're being lied to, because these, you know, these shows are very sophisticated and the lie goes much further than uh, than you realize. The the way you feel about that show and and reality as a whole, reality TV as a whole makes me uh, well, as as a little sidebar, Mr. Beast did a, uh, a the YouTube guy did a, a squid game thing, and I think he did it right in the way that he did it. Uh, it, it just the 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 red light green light was very fast and everything was just kind of fast paced. It didn't seem like people were abused there, but again, it's YouTube. But the way you <laughs> feel about reality, it, like reality TV shows, the same way I feel about how YouTube and and all this uh, TikTok and online stuff is created, because now it's so easily accessible and and people who are young are and be, even people who are in their mid twenties and thirties are really tanking, taking that stuff in and just accepting it for what it is and, and really just living off of it and, and profiting off of it. And it just feels as gross as reality TV is, except uh, whereas like that, you have to be kind of active and really go, I'm going to watch the bachelor golden golden years. I'm going to watch the the rest of these this is this is just kind of passive i'm scrolling you know you scroll through tiktok you scroll you watch on youtube and you and you just accept it for what it is and that doesn't feel um any anywhere as good as as uh people think it should 
Yeah, I know I, I probably sound like a grumpy old guy when I say this, but every time I um, encounter TikTok or the versions of TikTok videos that are on Instagram and Facebook, I feel like I'm stupider uh, yeah. after I've experienced them. Um, you know, on the one hand, um, being able to experience a lot of different media media experiences very quickly uh, can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, allowing individual people the ability to create whatever's on their mind or whatever is in their expertise or whatever they, um, you know, care about, that's a great thing. But the, the problem is, you know, just as, you know, the gatekeepers could sometimes keep people away who had valid and, and interesting points of view, the gatekeepers also kept a lot of nonsense out of the public discourse. And now that's just come flooding in, 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 and, you know, it puts more of an onus on the individual person to do more than just passively scroll through things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you see something that makes some sort of outlandish claim, you know, you really need to have the media literacy tools to investigate that a little bit before you pass it along or before you believe it. Yeah. Because what we find is that people tend to believe media that's passed on to them from their friends or from their friendship circles. So even though, um, so if somebody creates something and it's misinformation or it's disinformation, and somebody like me debunks it. it, it doesn't matter because the people who are friends of that person will believe them before they'll believe me. And 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 this is um this is one of the one of the great um things that I think maybe we didn't see coming in the social media revolution is the the um elimination of respect for experience and expertise. Um, you know, when you when you create a level playing field where everyone can talk about anything, um, it also creates a situation where, you know, you can be the head of the Federal Reserve or you can be some Yahoo who doesn't have a checking account and you're both talking about the U.S. economy. And theoretically, either one of your conversations could be elevated if enough people think it's interesting. Right. Um, so, so that's one of the drawbacks when you take away the gatekeepers is that people who have a lot of expertise in something who try to say, Hey, here's why this isn't true. Or, Hey, here's why you need to be more careful when you consume this media or, Hey, here's the impact of constantly watching these, you know, types of videos on you as a person, it gets lost in the sauce and you're you're equalized with all of these people um, who don't really know much other than how to get attention online. And that's something, you know, you, you look at um, you look at politics and you see Congress is filled with politicians who don't know how to legislate. They don't know how to use government to help people. They don't know. They don't really have a strong, logical set of ideological values. Um, the, but they do know how to get attention and they know how to raise money and they know how to create viral videos and they, and they know how to get on Fox News and Newsmax and MSNBC and CNN and spout off in a way that raises their profile so that they become famous and late night talk show people will talk about them. Right. But, 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 you know, when you look at, um, you know, um, the guy who tried to be speaker of the house and, uh, um, uh, the former wrestling coach, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. Um, but you know, one of the things that came out when he tried to be speaker was that he had been in Congress for, um, almost 20 years and had never sponsored legislation that became law. Never. That's insane. <laughs> Jim Jordan is what I was trying Jim to remember. Jordan, okay. um, so so uh, so when you're in a reality like that, where your ability to make noise and galvanize attention and get people to pay attention to you elevates you at the same level as people who have an expertise in government or know how economics works or have, you know, 
a, a strong set of values about you know how our government should work or mm-hmm. you know how um you know uh, legislation should affect people you know when those people are, are put on an even playing field that's when you have sort of chaos and craziness and people don't know who to trust and um you know that that's the unfortunate consequence of where we are yeah. um you know in media and as a society and the really the only um um, solution to it that I can see is that we have to create a smarter media consumer so that they are not as susceptible uh, to all this misinformation and disinformation that's, you know, flooding social media platforms, especially. Yeah. Hey, well, speaking of uh, media consumer, and uh, this will be the last thing I ask you. I know you're a busy man, but um, I, uh, in 2016, I decided to essentially just stop watching things or listening to shows that um, didn't have a lot of uh, diversity in it. And and now we have these great, uh, uh, I'm trying to find the studies, the, uh, the, 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 the Annenberg USC uh, inclusion initiative, and then mm-hmm. UCLA's diversity report, uh, Hollywood diversity report. And those come out quarterly, like every year. And I, I love those because it tells us women aren't directing or women aren't getting chances to direct. Uh, there's not a lot of people who were differently abled in TV shows. Uh, there's not a lot of native Americans on, you know, on in, in music or whatever. And I love seeing that type, that type of thing, but does that ever, uh, I, besides work, but does that for you, does that ever in fact affect how you uh, take things in? I see black lightning poster behind you. <laughs> yeah. and while And while that was a, that was a great show. It only lasted a couple years on, on the CW and uh and for what it's worth i mean it was the the most uh, besides jane the virgin and maybe crazy ex girlfriend one of the most diverse shows at its time uh, on on that network yeah yeah um well you know i've been i've been uh covering the uh studies created um by the folks at Annenberg and UCLA for years and one of the things that is troubling is how little some of those numbers change over the years. Um, one of the things that we learned from looking at UCLA studies is that um, TV shows and films that m- most closely reflect the diversity of America tend to do better um, economically. They tend to perform better. They tend to make more money. Um, so, all of this stern and drong and angst that happens in Hollywood sometimes about having, um, you know, certain numbers of people's uh, people of color in the cast of shows and things like that um, is, is misplaced because mm-hmm. the problem is if, uh, if a show, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a problem, but the challenge is that if a show is over represents any ethnicity, um, it may have a harder time in the marketplace because people are looking for shows that reflect the reality they understand and that they live every day, especially young people. So um, so UCLA is constantly proving that you need um, diversity, a level of diversity that reflects America. Now, um, shows rarely achieve that, not necessarily because they underrepresent Black people or because they underrepresent Native Americans or because they underrepresent Asian people. It's because they underrepresent Latinos. Um, Latinos are, um, you know, about 17 to 18% of our population. They're the largest non-white group in America. And yet, you know, their percentage of speaking roles and major roles in TV shows and films is somewhere around four or 5%. And that hasn't changed for years. And, and, you know, I understand why it happens. It's a, it's an economic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when, when you put a predominantly black cast in a TV show, black people watch it. Uh, right. it, it, it is, um, it's just something that happens. You know, black people are so starved for the sight of authentic depictions of their culture and themselves in TV and film that when it happens, they flock to it. So, you know, if you want to create um, a TV show or a film that draws a substantial audience of black people and and draws a young audience, because, you know, black 
audiences tend to be younger and draws a, a, a maybe a more mobile audience because uh, black audiences tend to be more involved with with their cell phones and, and social media. Um, then create a TV show or film with a lot of black characters in it. it it's it's pretty simple. It is not so simple when it comes to Latinx, Hispanic uh, viewers, because, um, you know, th there's a language that binds a bunch of different nationalities and ethnicities, right? Mm -hmm. So you could create a show that stars a Cuban family and people from Brazil or Guatemala might not feel connected to it. You could create a show that features Mexican characters and, you know, people who are from Cuba or from, um, you know, further down in Latin America, they might not, um, you know, find it particularly representative or might not find that it speaks to them. And so um, you can't just do something as simple as create a show and put a bunch of Latino characters in it and expect, you know, 18 percent of the country to tune in, you right. know. It, you you have to you have to be more careful and you have to create shows that are much more authentic and you have to create a range of shows. You, you have to create shows that maybe feature a Cuban family and feature a Puerto Rican family and feature a Mexican family. And then you you get a wider swath of people checking it out. Right. Um, and that's something that Hollywood is not familiar with or knows what to do with or, you know, is even you know, sure it wants to invest that much energy in. Right. And so um, you wind up with a situation where, you know, it, it's hard to get Latino people, um, characters as leads. You know, it's 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 hard to put very many of them in shows that aren't specifically geared towards um, Latino or Hispanic um, subjects. Mm -hmm. and, and and the number never budges. And so, um, you know, there, there has to be, you know, a more concerted attempt, uh, I think, to in particular raise the diversity for um, Latino characters and creators and yeah. producers and storylines. Um, so those those kinds of uh, surveys don't necessarily affect what I watch, um, but they do allow me to sort of keep an eye on where the trends are going. Yeah. Um, there's some concern about um, LGBTQ characters that maybe progress there has kind of stalled. If you look at some of the surveys, um, uh, you know, black characters and black people are overrepresented. Uh, and it's hard for us to hear that sometimes, but uh, <laughs> but it is but it is true. Um, and so, you know, um, even though we want to push for better portrayals and we want to dismantle systemic racism, we always want to make sure that we're keeping a close eye on how um, black characters and subjects are handled. Um, you know, we a, a lot of Hollywood's focus on diversity has been to create shows that feature black characters and black subjects. And so we're a little overrepresented. Asian characters, too are kind of a little overrepresented if you look at the studies. Yeah. So um, so, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot of things that have to happen. There's a lot of things we still have to have to get better on. And these surveys help us get a sense of, you know, what's worth paying attention to, where work needs to happen. And in particular, where consumers might want to aim their buying power. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, uh, if a great, um, you know, Latino-centered TV show or film comes along, you know, maybe think about going to see it opening night, you know, opening weekend. So there's a bigger box office and maybe think about encouraging your friends to go see it or maybe think about, you know, watching it as soon as the show debuts. So it gets a big, you know, uh, rating yeah. um, in, in, in that way, because because, you know, I was just I uh, was just reading this really well done book about um, the Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe. And I'm going to look it up while we're talking. Um so I make sure that we that I, it's called the Reign of Marvel Studios, uh, MCU, the Reign of Marvel Studios, and it basically talks about how the Marvel Cinematic Universe was put together, all the different travails and putting together all these interlocking movies that kind of culminated with uh, Avengers: Infinity War and uh, Endgame. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they talk about a lot in that book is that one reason why Marvel, so many Marvel movies were focused on white male characters for so long is that there was a, a creative committee inside of Marvel that was dominated by um, an executive who was in charge of toys.
Hey man, I'm sorry about that. I, I I know I I know I can talk and talk. No, 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 no. You're completely fine. Uh that actually happened with Chuck Nice as well. And <laughs> it is so embarrassing. Like when it happens with people, especially people I know, and I'm here <laughs> and and like and like the timer pops up and I go, I go, okay, we can do this. I can I can do this. And then when I, I, I get it in, I get it in. That's oh and, yeah. So I so anyway, I really apologize for that. Um, but um but anyway, I just want to finish the thought that I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Please. Uh, so this so this book is great. MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios, and it talks about uh, how all these different movies were made and came together. And people criti- have always criticized Marvel, including me, uh, for um, you know not featuring more women and people of color in its big movies. And yeah. it turns out the reason why that happened is because uh, Marvel, in the beginning especially, was very focused on toy sales. Mm-hmm. And that was how um, they, uh, they planned to make money. Um, they were only interested in making TV shows and films early on. You know, this is like back in the days of Blade, and, and uh, you know, leading up to the first Iron Man and sort of in those early days, they were really focused on selling toys. And they were convinced um, that, that um, uh, they you know, no one would buy or, or many fewer people would buy um, toys based on female characters and non-white characters. Mm-hmm. And so there was this creative com- committee inside of Marvel that had a lot of influence over how they did movies and which movies they did. And they mightily resisted um, any movies that would be focused on women or people of color, which is why, for example, it took so long to make a Black Widow movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they actively resisted. They resisted having the character in the Iron Man movies. Um, they resisted having the character in the Avengers movie. <laughs> and, they re- and they resisted uh, giving the character her own movie. Wow. So um, it all comes down to money. Yeah, and yeah. and it, and more than that, it comes down to these misguided assumptions that white, often white people make about what makes money. And they assume that, you know, we heard for years and years and years that movies starring um, black people and, and, and movies starring non-white people, blacks and Latinos especially, did not travel. They didn't they didn't do well overseas, particularly they didn't do well in India. They didn't do well in China. They didn't do well in Asian markets. We always heard that. But somebody like Will Smith, if you look at even his worst movies, if you look at uh, the movie that he made with his son, where they were um, they were after Earth, Earth, they were stranded on an alien um, uh, planet. the, if you look at the revenue, go to Box Office Mojo and look at the revenue of that film, you will see 60% of it came from overseas. Wow. So we're not just talking about like the big hits like Black Panther that finally proved that everybody likes Marvel movies, even people in China and, mm-hmm. and, and even when they start Black people. This was a movie that was a commercial failure in America, but it made money. Because Will Smith is popular overseas. Yeah. So, you know, all of this nonsense about, you know, movies starring, you know, black people don't travel or and and what's the what's the longest selling, uh, you know, toy around Barbies, mm-hmm. you know, action figures for women. I, you know what? <laughs> I just don't understand the thinking. It's so frustrating. Um, and, and so. um Often when you want to try to understand why there's a lack of diversity in uh, film or TV, you really have to try to f- get to the, the money part of it. it. It is often a money thing. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a systemic prejudice thing disguised as a money thing. That is often what happens. People wow. say, we don't want to make movies starring women because people don't buy toys uh, featuring female characters and then you come back to them you say well what about barbie isn't that like one of the longest running toy lines in forever oh oh, oh well that doesn't matter because xyz you know yeah they have an explanation they're, they're they're trying to come up with a business reason to justify these um you know weird ideas that they have that marginalize people who are not like them and so you know it it, it plays out and plays out and plays out. And that's one thing that the UCLA studies and the and the Annenberg studies have also been very good at debunking is all of these nonsensical 
um, reasons that people offer for why there can't be a wider diversity of lead characters or a wider diversity of directors or a wider diversity of showrunners. They prove through their studies that, you know, a lot of these uh, products created by these people make a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, you know, I see it now, especially when looking at um, the showrunner for the flash was, uh, was a black man. And yeah, Eric Wallace, but, he's, he's actually a friend. I know. Yeah. When, when I saw that, like I, as much, even, even when there are storylines I didn't, I, I didn't like or enjoy, I still tuned in because not because of like the wider universe of what are they going to do with crisis and everything, but because yeah. I wanted to continue to support him and then as well as uh the the young woman that played iris and and uh and the guy that played joe because i like all of those people and the, and the guy that played cisco and, and it's just it was it's amazing to to now live in this landscape where we can have a huge diverse array of people on tv and in music and in podcasting uh which is a new medium in of itself uh and in film and and uh and and for it to be celebrated and and talked about in the way that you talk about it in the way that you and your colleagues write about it and i uh it makes me it makes me hopeful that even though these numbers aren't as as changing as they should be that eventually at some point in the future the the studios and the execs and and everybody in between and and below are going to be like Hey, maybe we should start turning into this. Maybe we can put uh, 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 more people of color or differently able people or women or uh, uh, trans people, or whomever, in in any of these projects. Yeah, and you know, um, the one of the other things that is just so weird about uh, show business. Like, you know, Eric uh, Wallace became showrunner on The Flash. Like that show had some instability because, uh, you know, um, it, it, you know, one of its showrunners, uh, Andrew Kreisberg, got fired right. in, in 2017 after he was accused of any inappropriate behavior. And Eric didn't replace him. Somebody else replaced that guy. And then Eric replaced that guy. But, you know, the show uh, had some had some instability because of it. And it created an opportunity for Eric. I've, I've known him for a long time since he. Uh, um, you know, he did some writing for the New 52 when DC decided to revamp some of its core characters. And he worked on revamping Mr. Terrific uh, for a, modern, a more modern audience many years ago. And, um, you know, it was great to see him get that opportunity. But it's so sad that those opportunities often don't only seem to come when there's instability or when there's something's in trouble. You know, I would just love to see a regular pipeline set up where it's a natural progression that people of color get a shot at these top jobs and it doesn't take somebody getting removed because of, you know, harassment allegations or, uh, you know, getting fired for or, or, or you know, even, you know, taking off for a big movie career um, to, to create an opportunity. It would be great to, to have a regular pipeline set up. Yeah. Um, because so, you know, so often, you know, I, you know, I think about when the Me Too movement first sort of burst on the scene and, and, you know, that was how, um, you know, um, Gail King wound up to being the central figure on CBS mornings. Yeah. Because Charlie Rose, um, you know, had a Me Too scandal and that was how Hoda Kotb wound up being at the center of the Today Show because Matt Lauer, uh, had a Me Too scandal. And, you know, at some point you're like, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Lester Holt became, uh, you know, um, the the top anchor on NBC Nightly News when his predecessor was deposed for not being completely truthful about his reporting in some instances. And so it's like, you know, can, can we have a situation where it's a natural thing that people of color progress into these jobs rather than having them have to take over in crisis? Right. You know, when somebody's been fired or when some scandal has happened and the show is unstable and now, hey, here you go. Here's your opportunity. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then and then also to keep those jobs, because what the top execs at Disney, uh, I think was a was a black woman and she left and then like other executives at other companies left within the past couple of years. And it's it's just, and, you know, I I work at CNN right now, and before that I was at uh, Cartoon Network, and I didn't really see even if I saw some women in charge, I still haven't seen like a lot of people of color in charge, uh, and and it's just and it's kind of a little bit disheartening, you know, to to kind of see that stuff, you know, obviously keep going and keep pushing forward and all that stuff, 
but to to go into an office where and this is no 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 dragging of him no offense of him but i get an email from mark thompson and i go you're a british white guy like you don't you don't know atlanta you don't know new york you don't know la like you can't be in charge like i was i was so i was championing for uh zaslov to put somebody else in charge maybe maybe a woman maybe a person of color somewhat promote from within uh and and we didn't get that and we're and we're getting we replace you know chris lick who replaced uh 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 the man before him yeah zucker before him and uh and and even though yeah and 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 you look at cnn and you say where are the black men on air exactly yeah where are they there's there's victor and then uh there's there's victor yeah, there's Victor. Yeah, I, could, I mean, I seriously. Else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously. You know, now that Don Lemon has left, there's Victor. Yeah, Victor's amazing, but he's one guy. Yeah, and and you know there, and I, you know, Abby Phillip. You know, I've met her. She's wonderful. I think she's great at what she's doing. I'm really glad that she's got a spot in in prime, prime time. And uh, the woman who's on after her is also a black woman. And uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but uh, but they're both really good. I'm glad they're getting a chance. But come on, you know, and CNN has long has has a has historic problem with black men. They they you know, black male anchors do not last at CNN. Mm-hmm. And it's been a longstanding problem and they don't seem all that inclined to to change it. No, and, and you know it's it's um, it's really it's re- you know as you said it's disheartening uh, to turn on the channel again and again and not see anybody um, who looks like you at a time when everybody's talking about how diverse how important diversity is exactly yeah you know and there's no game plan for changing that that's the other thing that's terrible <laughs> it's like okay here's the problem how are you going to solve it yeah. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, it is it is frustrating to face these things in media and it's frustrating to see the, the same problems cropping over up. And over again, yeah. You know, like I said, you know, this 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 underrepresentation of Latinos, you know, I think the first Annenberg study that I wrote about that mentioned this was, you know, seven or eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's a longstanding thing. Yeah. Uh, and 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 at some point, you know, people I mean, would you have to what you eventually have to do is figure out a way to make the counter financial argument. That's what that's what you, the UCLA studies do. They they say if you want to make money, then you have to create media products that reflect the diversity of most people's lives, mm. um, you know, mostly white, um, you know, TV shows and films will not make as much money as racially balanced TV shows and films. So you counter the um, the uh, you, you counter the financial argument that's rooted in stereotypes and unreality with a financial argument that's rooted in reality. Yeah, there, there was a point uh, when I was watching F9, uh, Fast Furious 9 for the first time in theaters, and uh, very early on in the movie, there's a chase scene when they're at a, when all hey, the hey, main you characters- know something about that movie? It's all about family. It is. And it's all about exactly. That's, that's all we. That's 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 the only thing I take away from the Fast and Furious. It's all about family, and that cars can fly sometimes, and maybe go. <laughs> but I, I was I was watching that, and and uh, and I and I was looking around at the the five or six main characters, and I went, "There's not one white person," because you know uh, what's his face yeah. passed away. There's not yeah. one white person. That's the main I know, in these movies. movies. And I went, I went, look at this, and I've been here with. <laughs> middle of the day but with a bunch of other grown men who who didn't have to work at that point on a tuesday and we're all just enjoying this movie and uh and and all oh hey it also happened to have a bunch of brown people who are the top line above above the line actors in it yeah yeah look at that man i mean you know i yeah i don't know man it's like i i always said you know why isn't Benjamin Brad like a bigger star? You know, like why, you know, I can just go down the list of, um, you know, uh, Hispanic Latino performers and just sort of go like, why are these people, you know, starring in stuff more? Why isn't Hollywood doing more with it? You know, Benjamin Brad was great in Poker Face. Yeah. He's still great. <laughs> you know, get this guy some more work, you know? Um, so, so, you know, it's just... I don't know. It's just Hollywood's going to Hollywood, you know, and and all we can do is kind of speak up and try to remind people and try to 
you know, push the idea that diversity is important and um, and encourage it and, and, and give people their flowers when they do it well and offer constructive criticism when they don't and hope that we educate the consumer to say, here's my, here's might be why this feels inauthentic to you. You know, this might be why, you know, um, uh, there's a show on Apple TV Plus called The Morning Show about, a, a, you know, a, a morning show that was rocked by a Me Too scandal. And then they, you know, it's a kind of a soap opera, you know. Yeah. And the thing about it is like it, it's basically focused on these two white women who are anchors of a morning show. And if you look at the network TV today, that does not exist. <laughs> there, there, there is no network morning show where two white women are the anchors. Yeah. Um, you know, black women, non-white women, um, have seats on every, you know, NBC, ABC, um, CBS, even Fox. Yeah, even Fox, even Fox. Um, and and so, you know, I look at the morning. I look at the basic premise of the morning show, and to me, it already feels fake. It already feels inauthentic. It already feels like, you know, there's some other dynamic at play for why we're seeing it cast the way it is. And if you're trying to tell a story that feels like fresh and, and new and of the moment, why doesn't your morning show reflect the the diversity of actual morning shows? Right. Why does it look like a morning show from 15 years ago? Yeah, I, I, you know, and, and so it's, it's, you know, a lot of people love that show, but it's hard for me to watch it because every time I watch it, there's a, a bit of unreality in how they cast it, Yeah, you know, and, and they have characters concerned about diversity issues that frankly were a thing 10 years ago, but are not necessarily a thing now. Yeah. And, and, and rather than deal with the current diversity issues, they're, they they always feel like they're a few years behind what's actually happening in the genre. And it's just sort of like, why is that? Well, you know, two powerful white female stars wanted to be on the show, Reese Witherspoon and, and Jennifer Aniston. So, you know, <laughs> again, you, we get back to that financial thing. So so um, so it's always tough to, to push uh, for what makes sense. And sometimes people really like stuff that's just not. Uh, right on these issues and you you have to be you know the the critics sometimes it's our job to be the spoil sport and say you know this may seem fun but you know yeah, yeah. that uh that you put it you could put a nice little bow on that it's very succinct uh eric you're a very smart person i knew that from your writing but uh even speaking to you it's uh it's crazy i feel I feel like I didn't bring uh, enough of my, my, I feel like I'm the media analysis of people that I know that was like, you just gave me like, uh, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like talk, I was talking to Frazier, Frazier Crane. And, <laughs> and, like he was explaining, he was explaining uh, 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 probes to me, you know, not <laughs> you, know, the, you know, like, shit, like just, just give me a, a whole, a whole. Uh, well, lesson. man, thank you so much. I mean, you know, it's just, I, I've been covering this for a long time and I've been talking about it for a long time and, and um, the, the challenge is to find new ways to talk about the same dynamics, because these dynamics, you know, are longstanding. Uh, I just reviewed um, a uh, film on Netflix called Stamp from the Beginning. And it's a docu it's a documentary film that basically tries to bring to life uh, the book called Stamp from the Beginning. Ibram X. Kendi, uh, noted uh, anti-racism scholar, he wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. This was his first really attention-getting book where he went back in history and found um, where all the tropes, the, the prejudicial tropes about Black people actually came from. He tells the history of them. And a lot of it is rooted in, you know, what I talked about um, uh, a minute ago, it was rooted in economics. You know, um, slavery has existed in the Western world for a long time, uh, but Europeans, um, you know, uh, were, were enslaving other Europeans. They were uh, enslaving Slavics. Uh, uh, he says that that's where the word slave uh, comes from. Wow. Uh, but at some point, um, you know, some of the people involved in the slave trade realized that if they enslaved Africans, people with uh, brown and, and, and dark skin, mm -hmm. uh, it would be harder for them to run away. It, it would be harder for them to blend into uh, the crowd in Europe 
um, or, you know, eventually in America. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and they could be more easily uh, controlled. And so they began to invent prejudices uh, uh, against Black people, uh, saying that they were animalistic and that they didn't have souls and that they didn't have any, you know, sort of society in order to justify enslaving them and, you know, uh, earning huge sums by, you know, um, uh, focusing the slave trade on on uh, people from Africa. And so, you know, the, the documentary sort of goes through a lot of this, but, you know, what he's always doing is trying to say, you know, there's an economic component to this, or there's a strategic component to this, you know, um, there's, there's a, there's a reason why, you know, Confederate statues popped up in the 1920s and not, right not during the civil war they popped up in the 1920s because white people were trying to scare black people out of voting so they could take their voting rights away from them you know if 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 you if you look closely enough you will see strategic and often financial reasons for why we're struggling with these stereotypes and it goes back you know this this shift towards africans and the slave trade happened in the in the 1400s so 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 you know the 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 tropes about black people being bestial and and untrustworthy and sexually promiscuous and violent they started then they started 700 years ago Mm -hmm. so so we're still fighting the same kinds of prejudices and we're we're trying to find new ways to talk about it to just keep people engaged in the conversation and keep them committed to the idea of beating these things down. And it just shows you how hard it is to overcome these stereotypes because um, there's too many sectors of society that have a vested interest in believing them. And you have to work really hard to convince people to let go uh, of these things that, you know, frankly, them and their parents and their parents' parents believed. That's very astute. And, and, and I love, and I think that's a great recommendation, uh, the documentary and, 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 in the book too. Um, I think I, I will definitely have to check both of those out. Cause, uh, that is, yeah, the, the film is, is a great way. It's a, it's a primer on the book. It's, you know, it's, like a, it's a little over an hour, I think. And it's a great way to, to get, um, sort of a, a, a quick, digest of what the book is about and if you find those stories compelling mm-hmm. then you can go to the text and get a lot more detail okay well i will do that thank you so much eric for the suggestions and thank you for sitting down with me i appreciate it hopefully we could do this again uh because i feel like there's anytime. a lot of things left unsaid anytime